we continue to unsuccessfully find the lowest common denominator. <laughs> Oh, you got no, pretty no. successfully. You, you got mean pretty, unsuccessfully. You haven't hit the bottom yet. You That's got, what I'm saying. There is no <laughs> so far. We you, the LCD is yet to be defined. You got really close last LCD. week. Last last For what? taping. For what? You don't remember the entire segment Nick had to take out? Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by the slang that my kids use. I would like to know why everything is lit and shook and quaking. Mm. That's what I want to know. Instead of wicked. Instead of wicked or awesome or totally. Or piss up. Yes, which is a... uh, Seems to be a Boston type thing. Yeah, piss up. Wicked, wicked. Yeah. Of course, well, is totally yeah. wicked, yeah. and that's ancient. Oh, wicked, G- awesome. Oh, geez, Jimmy wrecked the Camaro. <laughs> <laughs> For example, I'm Matt Fox from the Department of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I'm here with Chris Gill and Don Thea. Hi, Matt. Hey, Matt. From the Departments of Global Health here at the Boston University School of Public Health, and as always, we are here in the Boston University Godly Studio. So, guys, we're getting into the Christmas season. This year, uh, we got our Christmas tree from a, a new place. We got it from the Population Health Exchange website. Hmm. Yeah. So you can get you can exchange your Christmas tree. Well, okay, we didn't didn't get a real tree, but instead, it's more of like a, a tree that symbolizes a resource hub for lifelong learning. Is what we really got. Hmm. Uh, so you can go to this website. God. This is where, really where this, you have it. an old an old population health and you oh, want to change it for a newer that's one. That's exactly what it is. You can exchange it. Uh, so this is Boston University School of Public Health's resource hub for lifelong learning, learning tools, programs, and classes. Just a reminder to everyone, there's still time to sign up for the PHX Winter Institute. So the PHX Winter Institute is going to be a little different this year, as we've talked about on the podcast. This time, it is going to be all online, so you don't have to be in Boston if you want to sign up for some of the great PHX courses. Uh, so this year, the Winter Institute is the same great programs as last year, but better travel conditions. You don't have to uh, sit in a, a middle seat to fly here to come to the program or sit in hours of of Boston traffic in order to get here. You can do it all from the comfort of your own home, wearing your PJs like I would. But uh, just a reminder, those programs that we have available is a course in uh, GIS, a course in story maps, and one in biostatistics with SAS Jump. And these are fantastic courses. So head over to the Population Health Exchange website to sign up for those at www.pophealthex.org. Uh, we do always want to remind you to go give us a rating on iTunes or your podcast app to help other people find us. And also a big thank you to everybody who wrote in with a haiku review. It looks Yay! like at this point we have found all the haiku writers and they are getting uh, little mugs or, well, they're not little mugs, they're mugs uh, and other goodies, I guess, being sent to you. So thank you uh, very much. Uh, I also want to point out, so we just had, if you look at the download stats, we just got 25 downloads in Indonesia. Indonesia. Which means really? either somebody has downloaded all the episodes in Indonesia or 25 people have all signed up and downloaded an episode in Indonesia. Or Didn't some you, permutation thereof. Or somebody's traveling there, Didn't maybe. did your family just take a vacation in Indonesia? I do tell them to download wherever they go, which is why we got so many in Tanzania that one time. <laughs> anyway... Now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club, we are going to look at a study that um, I am kind of uh, surprised in a way that we haven't gotten to before. But um, this one is about organic foods and whether or not they cause cancer. And I should say up front that we just today had a uh, listener write in and request that we do this study. And uh, coincidentally, after we had already decided that we were going to do it, so great minds think alike. So thank you for sending in that request. Uh, So in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we will talk about uh, data safety and monitoring boards and what they are and how they fit into the big picture of medical research. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or helped me get through yet another rendition of Mariah Carey singing Christmas songs. (sighs) 
hate that song. I can't do it. I can't do it. My all-time most hated we, songs. We, my kids play it over and over, and I'm I'm slowly losing it. The other one that that drives me over the edge is Feliz Navidad. Yep. No, that's that's a yep. Oh, I love Feliz Navidad. Of course you do. I cannot stand that song. Love nope. that song. No. All right. Should we do segment one then? I don't want so, to wish you a Merry Christmas. Oh, now it's going to be in my head the entire podcast. All right. So segment one, we are getting into an article that looked at the effect of organic food on cancer risk. So this one was published in JAMA Internal Medicine by first author Julia Baudry. And I can't even do this. So I'm going to try my best. Of the Centre de Research Epidemiologie. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, something in French. I can't. Oh, I, my French oh. is terrible. That's, just, that's <laughs> good enough. That Sorbonne, Sorbonne, Paris, France. Was right. that... Even passable. The yeah. Sorbonne, that's a right, university. Somebody can, somebody can edit that out later and overlay somebody speaking in perfect French. Centre de recherche épidémiologie et statistiques sur bonne parisité. All right. The study was titled The Association of Frequency of Organic Food Consumption with Cancer Risk. And some headlines, as you would imagine, this got a ton of press. So I picked out some headlines. So Newsweek says eating organic foods linked to lower cancer risk. The New York Times says, can eating organic food lower your cancer risk? Uh, USA Today, does eating organic food prevent cancer? Yes, a new study says. Uh, mm. Business Insider Singapore, which I picked that one because I just like the, the headline. Scientists are learning that eating organic might be tied to a lower cancer risk, but there are some big caveats. You know, that was a pretty good, like, uh, you know, summary I thought of that their was, data. I thought that was a good one. I thought Might, that was could. He's very, uh, yep. very um, cautious. I like that. Yep. The Guardian says, don't believe the hype. Organic foods, organic food doesn't prevent cancer. Oh, wait, oh, wait wow. Look That's at that. not what it said. Um, I'm with you. Uh, and then I don't know what, what, what the Elite Daily is, but I pulled this off just because I like the... The headline, the health benefits of organic foods might actually be worth the extra cost, science says. No, 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 no. That's reading a lot into things. No. That's a value judgment. Uh, that is a value judgment. So They should uh, read the fine print there. Yeah. Absolute risk reductions, for example, being, well, and we'll get there. We'll get there. But I'll, I'll just, I'll just preface, like, this is, this is a, this is a, how do we call it? Uh, uh, what do you call trailer? it? A trailer? A trailer. No, a, no, a, foreshadowing. Uh, a foreshadowing, right. Yes. Yes. Absolute risk reduction, small. Dun, dun, dun. Small, small, small. Okay. Anyway, if real. All on. right, done. Matt. What is this study all about? All right. So um, this is a study that attempts to, as you, as we heard from the titles that you just read, uh, make a connection between the, uh, um, the increased dietary intake of organic foods and cancer. And this is built upon um, a study, at least one study that the authors uh, report previously that seemed to indicate that there was a connection, but it was... It was a while ago, and it um, depended on recall, and there were a lot of other problems with that study. They, they also cite the fact that there has been a risk that's been associated with the ingestion of pesticides, which is the sort of the hypothesis that they're trying to promote here, mm -hmm. and um, cancer risk, but in occupational settings where the exposure to pesticide would be considerably higher than you would expect to get with a um, non-organic diet. Um, and other other bits of information that they cite um, also is that in the United States, apparently 90% of us have um, detectable urinary levels of one or another pesticides. Mm, I mm. can believe that. So, so it really is um, an exposure out there. And the, and the issue is, is there a way for us to design a study that's going to actually um, try to make a sound correlation between the ingestion of organic foods and presumably lower pesticides and the development of cancer. So this team which, as Matt said, was from France. And in France, they're using a, a, a web-based database that was set up in 2009. And um, they, they, uh, the, this database, is, which is called the Nutrinet Santé Study Database, and it's a prospectively followed cohort of volunteers that were, um, were collected through this web-based interface um, where they were asked a bunch of questions early on, um, very extensive questions about their dietary habits as, and as well as their activity and demographics and all the rest of that stuff, um, as well as food frequency with respect to a whole host of different um, uh, food groups, as well as whether um, they obtained food, um, they, they consume food um, that was organic frequently or not frequently. And so they then, based on um, that enrollment questionnaire, they then followed this group of people on average for about five years thereafter. 
Um, the baseline questions um, were broken down into about eight modalities where they asked them whether their consumption of these various food groups as well as whether they consumed organic or non-organic food. Most of the time, occasionally, never because it was too expensive, never because I'm not interested, never because I avoid such projects, never for no specific reason, and I don't know. And then they assigned a score, which they call the organic score. Um, which was from zero to 32. And for that score, based on those those modalities, they um, assigned points. So um, an individual would be assigned two points if they consumed um, organic or non-organic foods, most of the time one point occasionally and zero otherwise. Um, and they used these to calculate the daily mean consumption that these individuals consumed of organic foods at that point in time, at the beginning in 2009 of the follow-up. And as I said, they followed them prospectively for on average four and a half years. They also merged this database with national health insurance and death registry database, um, where they were able to cull from those databases instances of cancer. And uh, I think one unique aspect of the study is that in every instance of cancer, I think 90% of the time, they were able to obtain medical records um, from the physician um, as well as have um, physicians on the study team review the medical records of those outcomes, of those, those can cancer episodes. So to me, that impart imparted a little bit more credence to the outcome. They broke the organic score into quartiles, and all the analysis, basically all the analyses were done um, essentially the first, uh, comparing the first quartile, which would be the lowest consumption of organic foods, to the fourth quartile, which was the highest consumption of organic foods. Um, they started out with 95,000 um, individuals who completed the food questionnaire. Um, they um, omitted those people who had prevalent episodes of cancer. Um, as well as uh, those people who had a sufficient follow-up um, information. And they went from 95,000 down to 69,000 individuals on whom the analysis is done, which is about a 28% um, decrease. There were 1,340 um, incident cancers that occurred during the observation period, and about 60% of them were either breast or prostate. Breast was 34%, prostate was 23%, and the remainder were skin and a small number of colorectal cancers. Some, and some lymphomas. And some lymphomas, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, now, when they looked at the baseline characteristics of this, this cohort of people, they found that um, it was 78% female. Um, and those individuals who had a higher organic score, those who tended to consume a higher number um, of organic foods, tended to be female, tended to be wealthy, more highly educated, had more physical activity. Um, there were more former smokers, and there were more um, women of postmenopausal status. Um, they also, there were differences also in that fourth quint uh, quinti uh, quartile in terms of the quality of the food. So those individuals tended to have a healthier diet. They had more fiber, they had more vegetable proteins, more micronutrients, and fewer red meats and other meats, poultry, and dairy products. So what they did was they basically did a whole series of um, comparisons with adjusting for a whole series of covariates, a lot of which you would expect, like family history of cancer, postmenopausal status, um, whether they took, uh, if they were female, whether they took hormones postmenopausally and food quality. And when they made and that- smoking. And smoking, yep, which is an important one. Yeah, there's there's a whole but there's a whole bunch of them. Um, alcohol intake, so all of the obvious co covariates yeah. were thrown into the into the model. And when they when they they did the comparison, they they came up with a thirty percent reduction in all forms of cancer, essentially um, between the high and the low organic food consuming groups. Um, and they did an analysis with food quality, and my sense, I, I didn't quite follow that analysis, but my sense was that uh, they were able to control for food quality, and that did not seem to change the effect that they saw. Chris and I totally understood the analysis, but unfortunately, we don't have enough time to go into it. So. <laughs> right. Um, and and when, they, when you drill down to the actual types of cancer, they found an association only with postmenopausal breast cancer in postmenopausal women and lymphomas. Uh, statistically significant, right? Okay, but that, that, there were also that, the, the the lymphomas and the skin cancers and the the postmenopausal breast cancers had the the lowest hazard ratios as well. So they were the they, most pronounced effects, irrespective of statistical mm -hmm, significance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and there were some other imbalances, I think, in that, you know, but between the, the first and the fourth quartile. Mm-hmm. Um, the postmenopausal status in the first quartile was 16% um, versus 24% yep. in the fourth quartile. Yep. They, um, what was the other one? Um, there was a, a, a lower BMI um, in the uh, fourth quartile, yep. or those those individuals that consumed high levels of organic food um, were, were had a lower BMI, and mm-hmm. alcohol intake also was lower, and smoking, I believe, was yeah. lower. There, there, well, was, there was some imbalances between these groups that they had to deal with statistically, although some of them seemed to go in the direction that I wouldn't have expected, and we can come back to that. But before we do, I, I want to ask you both, before I, I we, we dig into the, the, the critique of this, did you have a, or can you remember having a prior belief about this before you read the article? Oh, yes. What, uh, what was your prior? My, my, my baseline assumption is that there would be no risk. No risk. Well, no, with that, let me take this back. My, my baseline belief is that there was no association. My baseline assumption is that the study would find one. Yeah, which uh, is a little ba- bit different. Based, based on the title, that, okay. that no. So let me let me quantify. I, I, my assumption is that I know would, exactly what he means. They would report a risk, and that I would not believe it. <laughs> I, so what so. I wrote down here is what I wrote down here is I'm open to small effects, but I also have a prior that says the study is likely to be confounded. Yes. So I'm 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 open to the idea. Actually, I can believe that there would be a, a, an effect that it wouldn't be a huge effect, but that there could be an effect. But I am also. Uh, my prior was that it's going to be very hard to control the confounding here. Yeah, totally. Don, do you? No, I, I yeah, completely you, agree. Plus, plus, it keeps coming back to the same problem that I have articulated many times well, before about nutritional studies, in that you're you're biopsying their their behavior at one point in time and then following them prospectively over a longer period of time and assuming yeah. that their behavior remains uh, constant. But they they did something a little bit different from some of the other studies we we did in this regard, which is at least that they measured the the food frequency on multiple occasions just to sort of like try to stabilize the baseline to some degree. But I agree that it's still wait a, a single second, point Wait a second, time. wait a second. They, they, they asked them to, to, um, ref, to um, indicate what their intake was on two weekdays and one weekend right. during that initial right. so two-week period. Right, so it's still, still, still the baseline. baseline. So it's really two weeks at the beginning of a seven-year follow-up. But they had a more, plausibly a more accurate... Slightly. Baseline, slightly. but still, but slightly. Slightly. Right, right, right. Your, your point is <laughs> to, totally, totally on the mess. Yes. All right, right, Chris. So, 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 I'm going to come back to the prior thing, but c- c- give us your take. Yeah. Chris. So, What's your... I totally, uh, I, I love the way you set that up, Matt, because you know, if 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 the listeners will go back one or two episodes, I don't remember which it was. There was one of the papers we reviewed. It was the one on um, dementia and um, herpes simplex, and the, we were all struck. Um, and skeptical of the magnitude of the benefit of herpes right. simplex it was, drugs. It was a massive right. we protective like, effect. And in a way, that was the most, I think, damning thing for us in terms of, of too good disbelief. To be true. It was too good to be true. And here, I, I, I felt like this was the situation in mirror image where I predicted that, that, that you know either there's going to be no effect or that, you know, the paper will report effect. But if there is an effect, it's going to be a small effect. Yeah. But actually, they found a small effect. You know, quite you know, you know, on a relative risk, it was maybe a largish effect. But on an absolute risk ratio, it was like a difference of 0.6%. Which is very small. Um, over, and, and over what, about four and a half, over five years? Four and a half year period. So, yep. so the, the fact that the magnitude of the, of the absolute risk reduction was so small kind of left me feeling a little more positive about it because I felt like to start with it, they hadn't oversold their data. You know, the other problem that I had, the other problem that I, I, I don't know if they oversold, but that you're saying that, that you think that the effect probably wasn't overestimated. I guess that's right. Yeah. Right. Sorry, Don. The other problem that I had with it is that, um, we we know that cancer takes a long time to develop. Yep, um, and it's it's something that develops really over decades, oftentimes. And it could be you could you could postulate that the the, the biopsy of the beha- of the feeding behavior at that one point in time in the beginning of the study is reflective of what has been going on for yeah. antecedent years and decades. But that if you're consuming a lot of organic foods now, you probably were, we're consuming back more then, back then, or, or, or possibly right. not, or right. possibly not. So, so it's I, not really le- a five year window. It's probably actually the five year window it could be plus longer, a decade or two in the in, in the previous period. But that doesn't make me any more comfortable because right. that increases my level of uncertainty about what's really going mm-hmm. on. You know, it's hard for me to believe that. 
that what was what what, what they were being ex- the pesticide level that they were being exposed to at the beginning of this study was causative for the cancers that they saw in four years or five years from that point. So it's just not enough time. Can I can I respond to that because I had the same the same concern, um, and here the the specifics of the re- of the associations with certain kinds of cancer tended to in- increase my my um, willingness to accept the results um, for exactly that reason. That is to say, you know, breast cancers we believe are 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 slow to develop and take you know cumulative genetic insults over many many years, maybe decades, um, and are also filtered through the lens of a, a, an extremely powerful effect on hormones, which which should have relatively little to do with pesticide exposure, albeit that some pesticide exposures can have an estrogen-disrupting effect. But, but you know, uh, otherwise, I think the dominant hormones in the body are human hormones, estrogen and testosterone. Um, and so in that regard, the fact that the, the most powerful association was seen with lymphomas, which have the shortest lead time mm. in terms of developing from normal to to abnormal mm-hmm. um, made me think that perhaps there's something more to this because that that felt to me more like a direct DNA disrupting you know insult as opposed to breast cancer where you would think that the DNA disruptions are relatively less important in you know compared with say the background genetics related to hormone receptiveness mm-hmm. okay so I thought that that was that was Fair a, enough a, 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 yeah. you know a relative plus in this because the effect was uh, what was it the hazard ratio was 0.24 for all lymphomas as opposed to 0.66 for postmenopausal breast cancer so that's right a, a, a bigger effect for lymphomas a much bigger effect yeah so I I I think that uh, when we when we go through these studies of, of anything dietary, I do think you're right, Don, that we've got to be thinking that if this is going to mean anything uh, for some of these cancers, it's got to be an indication of more consumption of organic foods at an earlier time period because the time window otherwise probably doesn't make so much sense except maybe for the <laughs> lymphomas. But but leave that aside. So we, we know then we've got a class misclassification issue. Um, as you know, in general, I... I, I try very hard to think about not just to say there's a misclassification issue, but what would be the direction of the effect. I think that would probably bias towards uh, towards no effect, though I can't say for sure, because it does seem, I suppose, theoretically, it's plausible that if you were exposed to a lot of pesticides, you know, at a younger age, you could try to make up for it by eating more organic foods later on. And so the, the behavior would actually be, you know, current, pesti- uh, current organic food use would be correlated with past uh, non-organic food use. But I think that's really a just-so story that probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so misclassification is one issue. The other thing we talk a lot about when we get to these dietary studies is confounding, the idea that mm-hmm. that you've got all these different things that come together. And of course, if you're eating more organic foods, you're, you're by definition going to be eating more vegetables, right? You're, you're going to be eating healthier foods. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, so it's hard to... Plus uh, a million other things that you do differently in your life. Plus the the behavioral things, right? right? But but even just on the on the consumption of of nutrient level, if you're eating more organic foods, aren't you by definition eating probably Less more other things, more uh, vegetables? I mean, it's but, not it's not required, right? Because you could. But didn't you could they control the for that? Same, well, uh, they put those in as covariate. Yeah, I, I I don't know that I totally believe you can explain that away. But so, but hang on. So let me let me let me follow up on that. Let me push back on that because what you're basically saying is that they built this model. They had a lot of outcomes. They had a big data set, and they threw in. Stop saying they threw things in. They threw They gently put in. Maybe 20 covariates, all of the ones that we talked about. Are you Mm. saying that you feel as if it's not, that you don't quite believe the the, the ability of the model to control for those covariates versus other covariates? Or, uh, you know. I think from a nutritional standpoint, you can't separate the two out very easily. That that when you are looking at organic. Which is confounding, right? Organic. Uh, well, it's 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 confounding that you can't remove. When right. you're looking at organic, you are you're talking about vegetables, and so consuming. No, you can talk about organic poultry, it's organic true. meat. You it's know. true. It's true. Or, or but you know, I no suppose, hormones uh, and, and milk, of course. Yeah. Okay. All right. So maybe I'm overstating things, but I still think you you've got those two um, factors coming together. But 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 here's the thing that that kind of surprised me. So when you talk about confounding. 
Um, I have a stereotype in my head of what this looks like. So, and you started to kind of lay it out that if you eat organic foods, you're also going to exercise more. You're going to smoke less. You're going to uh, probably be in a higher socioeconomic Sleep status. Sleep more. You're going to meditate. You know, you're going to do a lot of different things. And and yet, it seemed like there were some things that were not associated in the patterns that I thought. So, higher organic consumptions, if I understood correctly, seem to be associated with less exercise, and with a history of cancer. Um, though it was associated with some things that I would expect, like, uh, uh, so less smoking, less alcohol consumption, less red meat assumption, less processed meat. Um, so those made sense, but the, the history of cancer and, uh, history of cancer makes sense to me in that you might consume more organic food if you were worried, more worried about cancer. You had a family history mm -hmm. of cancer, but mm -hmm. then your risk for cancer presumably is higher if you've got a family history. So th that makes sense, but it, it is a potential confounder. And then um, and the less exercise kind of kind of threw me a little bit. You're getting less exercise if you're eating more organic. But here's the kicker for me, is that look at their, um, if you look at their model, so you're, Don, you're saying they, they, Gently place these things into a, into a model. <laughs> Ram them into the model. Thoughtfully hammered in. Thoughtfully hammered in. So we get these multivariable estimates, um, but somewhere they give us the both the the crude and the adjusted estimates. Where am I? Where am I not finding that? But I remember they gave us both, uh, and maybe it was just in the text. But nothing changed when they when they adjusted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the mm -hmm. adjustment didn't mm -hmm. do anything. Mm -hmm. Which so that that suggests to me that 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 there really isn't confounding that mm. that that were measured confounding I mm. should say mm. that I, I don't know something seems a little or the data skiffy that. or or, or that my, yeah and my guess is that's it it's that there is there's limited ability to actually measure the confounding well but I mean we have some of these things that seem imbalanced as you pointed out we don't know how associated those things were with cancers so you can't tell for sure what you'd expect to happen from a data standpoint but from just a logic standpoint. To me, something should be going on. I, it just seemed a little, yeah, mm -hmm. little strange you know, to me. What, one of the other issues that I had with this was that um, it, it, it's it's logical and it makes sense that exposure to um, dietary pesticides would have an increased uh, propensity to cause cancer. Um, and and their presumption is that based on the questions that they asked, but they did not validate the questionnaire. They that you know they're they're making the assumption that. The answers to those questions with respect to the amount of organic food consumed mm -hmm. is, in fact, there is a direct correlation with the amount of pesticide consumed. And they did not validate that. And I think that that would have been really helpful mm -hmm. if they had gone to the individuals and they had um, taken a, a very small sample of those individuals and they stratified them by high, low, first and, and fourth quartile. And then they measured the urinary output of, you know, pesticide metabolites. Because it's a leap of faith, I think, that leaves me, you know, unsettled about this. It's a proxy. I mean, the, uh, this this all is, is in some ways the mirror image of, of the Subaru kayak roof rack uh, metaphor oh, which, that I brought which, back. Which, which, which episode was that? Uh, the that Subaru was kayak roof rack? four episodes ago. Metaphor? Um, yes, it's a good one. Uh, but, you know, but here, of course, it's a little bit more proximate because we're not talking about a, a prox like a Subaru kayak roof rack, which clearly has nothing to do with anything other than as a marker of socioeconomics, right? right. Whereas the, the consumption of, of organic foods could be an exposure, or it could be a, a, a reflection of socioeconomics, yep. or it could be both. Yep. In could fact, be. it's almost certainly both. Yep. So, but uh, kind of wandering through their table one, I thought this was kind table of table one. So this is the descriptive, descriptive table uh, comparing the quartiles. The Who quartile are the populations? Who's in there? Yep. Right. So we've got the the lowest consumers versus the higher consumers, and I thought this would just be kind of like an interesting case study to sort of consider the myriad webs, overlapping webs of confounding that may exist here. So if you kind of like run down the list and you look at the Q4, the highest quartile versus the lowest quartile. You know, you've already mentioned that they were much more likely to be female. They were an average older. They had, you know, they were more likely to work in managerial uh, roles in their jobs and less likely to do manual labor. They wealthier. had the higher education levels. They were wealthier. And they were less like they were more likely to have been former smokers, which makes sense because they're older. And you're more likely to become a smoker, a, sm a former smoker, the longer you live. Yep. Right. Because right. Yep. You, so what you, do you think about cohabitating? Um, and cohabitating. <laughs> <a funny laughs> <one. laughs> Let me, let me well, keep going. Why was the highest quartile? So I'm more likely to cohabitate. I am a fan of cohabitating, Don. Thea. <laughs> that's, um, that's but I don't. So that's a weird, the phrasing so, there was weird, though. The way you asked that. I don't think you're asking me if I would like that's to what cohabitate. I you were asking. No. No. Okay. Because uh, you got a new condo. I think. I it was, think. It was eighty. Wait a minute. I think we should do a. Uh, a we should bring back the odd couple. 
No. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. No, let's not do that. Anyway, so you, you, you can sort of look at this and, you know, they were less likely to use hormonal conception, uh, contraceptives, yep. uh, and, you know, all on and on and on. So all of these things, like there, there was all of these variables you can see are bound to be confounded with many of these other variables. And then all of these variables, therefore, probably exist in this sort of this web of intricate confounding in different directions. And with multiple, you know, directions of causality implied by these relationships, which are hard to untangle. Yep. And, and, and I always wonders, like, how can we really adjust for that using a logistic regression? I agree. this about the Chris? magic of logistic regression? Can I really do that? I, you know, that I really fundamentally work? don't all, believe I hate, it. I hate logistic regression. You know that. But uh, no, the answer is it can't. Um, so, okay. Oh, we control for that. That's always the answer. Oh, yeah. No, no. We control for that in the model. Well, so, yeah, right. So, right. <laughs> Right. Okay. It, it does gonna, raise uh, one's level of, of skepticism because it's just so complicated. Okay. So, so <laughs> here's a question. Um, so we, 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 I think we all agree that we, well, I don't know. I shouldn't say, do, do, do you all agree that there is probably something going on here, but it's not very large? No, I don't. Okay. Chris? Yeah. Maybe 0.6%. It, it's like, turn that into a number. One out of every 200 cancers would have been av- av- avoided through the uh, hyperconsumption of organic vegetables versus the, the least consumption of organic foods. I think, I think it makes I think it makes potential sense, but I, I don't think these data convince me that okay. there is an effect there. Okay. So the question is, are Chris and I more believing in this study than, say, so many of the other dietary studies for which we have been more skeptical, probably much more like you are with this one, because we went into this with the open to the idea that there probably is a, something small going on. Are we influenced by, in other words, we, we as a group are generally not super excited about dietary studies. No. We think they've got all kinds of problems and they're very hard to believe. So why this one, are Chris and I kind of okay with this? Is it because we're seeing what we expected and therefore... We like it. Let me ask because a question. Because it's got the same problems. Let me ask a question. It's got the same problems. How many times a week do you shop at Whole Foods, Matt? I do not shop at Whole Foods. Chris? Trader Joe's. How about Trader Joe's? I shop. They're at not organic, Whole... aren't they? Not. I don't no. think so. Not necessarily. How no. about you, Chris? Are they inorganic? I don't go to Whole Foods very often, but we go to Donnellan's, which is like the local Whole Foods. I go there all the time. And you, Don? Ne- never. Never go. No, it's too expensive. Yeah. No, so I don't go there. So that's not Pisses my. Pisses me off when they just then they jack the price up for for no reason. It's whatsoever. not. It's not my. It's not my thing. But I'm so just saying those are our biases. No, no, but I'm just saying. So why? So why, Chris? Why do you and I are a little bit lighter, uh, easier on this one? Why are we more like to believe it, given that we clearly think it's got the same problems yeah. as. The previous studies. So to, uh, you know, I want, I want to sort of air my caveats. I am not convinced that there's a causal relationship yeah. here, but I'm willing to believe that there might be based on these data. And in any case, the, the magnitude of the cancer causing risk or cancer reducing risk of consumption of high rates of organic foods versus low rates was so small that it almost feels to me like either, you know, regardless of whether it's right or wrong, the magnitude of the effect is irrelevant. This is is not a way to reduce cancer at a population level through organic foods. This is, this is not going to do it. I, yeah, I don't quite fall on that line because, because it's, it's, it's not, it's plausible to me that, that if the effects are, uh, real that they're underestimated here because of the way that they're estimating it. And I suppose it's possible that it's going the other direction too, though, for all the reasons that we talked about, all the confounding reasons. So I'm 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 open to it. I don't know why, and I, it's just been troubling to me that I read this one going in thinking, yeah, there's not going to be much going on, and it's going to be confounded. But you know, maybe there's there is something small there. And then I read it and I thought, yeah, I'm 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 kind of mildly convinced by this one more than the other ones, and I don't know why. And so the question I think for the listener is. The feedback that I would like from our listeners is, should we stop doing dietary studies completely? <laughs> yes. I mean, should we? Yes. Because but they're the ones that are of the most interest, and they're to the, the ones public. that get the most press, right? They because do. we all That's care. True. We all eat. It and is w- the it is the the BS the BS paradox of epidemiologic research. I don't I don't know what exactly your well, paradox the, the, that the, is. We, we, the dietary. I guess I need to said this so well that that the public is intensely interested in yes. diet. Yes. And so these studies got outsized uh, publicity in the lay press. 
Um, and Although often they look like the, the, the effect estimates are way too big, and they're not here. And they're not here. Uh, but I think we find that somewhat irritating, that there's, there's so much <laughs> prominence given to studies that we, we on, on average, consider to be methodologically particularly weak. Yeah. We have not found one yet that has been particularly strong. Well, I, and that's why I've said I want to see more, I want to do more trials, maybe, but you maybe, don't believe maybe, they could ever be done. Maybe an answer to your question about why you have a little bit more, you, you put a little bit more credence in this study is because certainly I was impressed with the strength of the outcome. And I think we don't see that necessarily in other mm-hmm. studies. In, 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 in the 1,300 cancer, cancers that were identified, they were verified. And, and that gives me a little bit more... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, they didn't yeah, just accept the insurance to... claim number. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, they, you know, they had somebody, Maybe. a second set of eyes actually verified and they looked at the medical record, but yep. still, I think it has some of the same basic flaws. All right. Can yep. I have the last word? Sir. All right. So a couple of things about this that I liked and I didn't like. Uh, so kudos to anybody who puts a whole, when you have a whole bunch of effect estimates that you are measures of association that you want to show us their figure, uh, which is, by the way, just figure. It has no figure number, which That's I right. liked. It's only uh, one figure. But people who put uh, the, all of those estimates into a, a figure rather than a table, so, so a forest plot type figure, just makes me, I mean, you can read that so easily and mm-hmm. look at what's going on. Not much. And just, no, but you can see that very easily. And, mm-hmm. and I just, kudos to anybody who does that. Second, did you notice that this study was registered at clinicaltrials.gov despite the fact that that is not an intervention? I didn't notice that. No, I, I, I was curious as to why. And I went and looked it up and it is in fact registered and it doesn't sound like there's any nested trial within it that I could find. Maybe there is and I just didn't see it. But I was kind of surprised by that. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's an ethically honorable thing they did. Yeah. Can, can, uh, I, can I have the last, last word? Did, well, did, I'm not there yet, but yes, you can. Did, did they uh, register the outcomes that they were measuring for, they for this analysis? Is that what you mean? They did. Yep. Wow. Um, they do have... Uh, p-values in their table one, which, you know, is not my thing. Um, but my favorite line from the whole thing, all medical information was collegially reviewed by an independent medical expert. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah. Don, what's your, what's your last? I just will uh, have, have you uh, guys both notice that the reference numbers are outside of the period. Mm. The reference That's numbers the are outside too. the period. That's the mm-hmm. correct way to do it. That is okay. the correct way to do it. As Don is referencing the uh, Twitter poll that I took, which uh, it's very interesting. Actually, I was shocked. So, yeah. so the question is: Do the when you refer when you put a reference, do you put it inside the, the punctuation or outside the punctuation? Yeah. And I thought there must be a right or a wrong answer. There is. And we took a poll. There is. And the poll was evenly divided. And apparently there are of the there are two of style them guides. Are wrong. There are two style guides <laughs> and one says one and one says the other. So huh. it's uh, I, this is this was real news to me. Well, so. maybe we should go further. Like what about putting a a citation within the sentence, like after a comma? How about how about if you put it in the middle well, of a, a word? Comma. Yeah. How about if you put the yeah. names of the authors in parentheses in the middle of the sentence? Okay, we to, could do that. To that really bother All right. Detract from readability. I like Moving that. Moving on. By the way, this was done by the Sorbonne. Do you know that they invented chocolate twice? This there's why, a, there's, this a, is, there's this a, is, a joke in there that I don't care because I don't speak where, French. This is where we get bonbons. Oh. <laughs> that is going to be... Oh, it's making me very sore. <laughs> oh, jeez. Between the two of you. Yeah. The amount of editing. Do you but know how were, much... They were painful. Hence Sorbonne. Bonds. Can we, can we? Now you make Nick laugh. That's that was so bad. You made Nick laugh. Oh. Okay, let's move oh, on. So God. in our second segment, we want to talk about something that uh, people who do clinical trials work know intimately about, but but we think that it's possible that the rest of the the world, people who don't do clinical trials, or people who are outside are the world of about? epidemiology, yeah, Chris. Hang on, hang Chris, on. You'll He'll find get out. There. You will find out Settle because down, uh, just so just so the listener knows, we have meetings ahead of time to discuss the topics, and then we run into Chris in the hall, and he has promptly forgotten what the topic is. So uh, Chris will now be learning that the topic <laughs> for today is data safety and monitoring boards. Oh, I knew that. <laughs> I knew that. I know. I prepped for this one. Um, so Don, you wanted you wanted to talk about data safety and monitoring boards. Why do you want to talk about what? Tell us what they are and why yeah. it is that you want to talk about them. Well, part part of the reason is that I, I find that I, I've mentioned it to people who I would have thought would know um, what they are, and a surprising number of people actually don't know what a DSMB is, and mm-hmm. and I find myself mm-hmm. having to explain it to people. And I think in the context of of some of the th- the topics that have come up um, on these podcasts in terms of. 
um, in terms of safety and in terms of ethical review and in terms of um, registering these studies, the concept of a DSMB, I think, is something that would be worthwhile for the for our listeners to, to understand. Okay. What a DSMB is, a Data Safety and Monitoring Board. And in essence, what it is, is it is a, it is a, a group of individuals who have nothing to do with the fundamental study. They didn't write it. They didn't, they didn't contribute to it in any way. They're not funded by the, by the funder. They, they, they volunteer to be part of this process. And the process is- and No as, conflict of interest either. And they have to have no conflict of interest whatsoever with um, what the study's about. And in essence, what it is, 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 is kind of a ethical monitoring of the study as it goes along. And it's impaneled at the beginning of the study, and there are parameters that are set up, and there are stopping rules that are set up such that- if there is above a certain level of risk or harm to the individuals who are involved in the study, or if the study gets to the point where it cannot prove what it was set out to prove, the Data mm. Safety and Monitoring Board has the power, it's invested with power, to stop the study. Because either it's too, one arm of uh, containing an intervention is found to be harmful, or one arm is found to be overly efficacious so that they stop the study and they offer this beneficial um, effect or beneficial intervention um, to the other arm. Or the third one is that they can stop the study because they've gotten, say, halfway through the study and there's, there's an interim analysis, which typically is not divulged to the investigators is only divulged to the data safety and monitoring board shows that even if you enrolled all of the people for the duration of the study that to complete your sample size, that you will not achieve the outcome that you um, built this study to, to try to determine. And mm-hmm. that's stopping it for futility. Mm-hmm. So, so essentially these are, these are boards which are impaneled to oversee the aspects of the study related to safety and then efficacy. also efficacy. Right. Um, and they have the ability to, as you say, stop the study if what they're observing in the data, and they are they are allowed to do interim analyses of the data. They have to be pre-planned and they have to be accounted for in the uh, final way that we, we describe the study results. But um, they are empowered to stop the study if things look, as you say, overly bad or overly, overly good. good. But they are not beholden to the to the investigators. They, they make the right. decisions totally independent. themselves. And, and this, we should also add that this is distinct from, from the mandate of an institutional review board, yep. whose job is to review a protocol and determine whether the protocol is ethically sound or not. And also, to some degree, to follow the conduct of the study in, in terms of, of the conduct of the trial. I mean, the Data Safety Monitoring Board, you know, the key word there is is data. The DSMB is not impaneled to make sure that consent forms were filled out or that the protocol was followed religiously. That is not their mandate. They're looking solely at the results of the the trial that are generated. And often the DSMB will include its own independent statistician to do those analyses, recognizing that the statistician who works for the sponsor may also share this conflict of interest. And and so, you know, the the interest in trying to make sure that their conclusions are unbiased mandates the use of a statistician who has access to the data that is unconflicted by the by, by the the study team itself. Okay, so we don't we don't let people do this themselves for because they have a conflict they they have a vested interest in the results of the study. Uh, so we, we we turn this over to a, a body who is empowered to do something with this information. Are are you on a DSMB, Matt? I have been on DSMBs. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you? Okay. I'm on on. Two right now. I'm on one right now. Yeah. And uh, does every clinical trial have to have a DSMB? No, um, not necessarily. Clinical, you know, mostly phase three uh, intervention studies generally will have a DSMB. Many phase two studies will also have a DSMB. And actually some phase one studies also have a DSMB, depending on the degree of risk implied. So a lot of them do. Risk is the key. So we do, you know, if we're going to do a behavioral intervention... Uh, for which we're we're not particularly concerned about the risk. There there may not be a DSMB necessary. You would need to have a data uh, a data safety monitoring plan, but you don't necessarily need a data safety uh, right. and monitoring board. For example, we, we, we did a, a randomized control trial of an mHealth intervention to promote continuing medical education amongst HIV doctors. So this is not a medical intervention because we're not changing the health of the recipients who are the HIV doctors. We're just seeing whether they study more and whether they do better on an exam. And so we did not impanel a DSMB for that because there was no safety issue around whether they study or not 
well, I suppose indirectly to the patients there might be, but but you see what I'm saying. We're not following a health outcome and there's no health intervention. So for that, we did not feel there was a, a need for DSMP. Yep. And so uh, to me, there, there's no question there. these data safety monitoring boards have value. Uh, that, that they are there to to protect patient safety and they are there for ethical reasons. The question is, though, can can these uh, what are the unintended harms of having a DSMB? And Don's giving me a frowny face that suggests he doesn't think there are any. No, no, no. I'm just trying to think of what they might be. Um, well, there's there's a curious. And, but, but let me preface it with the fact that in general, I'm I'm a huge proponent of data safety. I mean, we need them, but I do think there are some potential. Problems, right? I mean, there's there. Uh, I'm going to quote a recent example, but there's a there's the potential for some gamesmanship in terms of how you interpret the actions of the DSMB. It's kind of like like the the Federal Reserve, and every time the you know the Chairman Powell says anything, everyone gets very excited and tries to interpret the heck out of it. It's like Nostradamus. But with with DSMBs, it's also like the DSMB met and did this thing that is to say they authorized the continuation of the, the of the study, and that could well lead people to assume, therefore, the study, the, the intervention is going to succeed. So, for example, we are uh, intensely interested about the results of an ongoing phase three uh, trial of a maternal respiratory syncytial virus vaccine. And the study is being sponsored by Novavax in Maryland, and they recently had their DSMB uh, meeting. And one of the stopping rules established in the in the mandate, in the charter, excuse me, of the DSMB was that they would stop the study if the vaccine had efficacy below, I think it was 45%, but, but we're going to just, I'll use that as a placeholder. I think it was 45%, but the numbers in some, in some case arbitrary. So if it was less than 45%, they would say this is not a viable product and they're going to abandon it. And if it was 45% or above, that means they continue to complete the trial. Mm -hmm. And so they continue to complete the trial. And the RSV community was collectively thrilled about this because to them, they're now thinking that therefore the RSV vaccine is going to be a winner. But in fact, all we know is that it is not a loser, but we don't know that it is a very good vaccine yet. We don't know very much. And we have read a lot into that decision that has generated a great deal of speculation and excitement, which may be, you know, maybe it's 46% and we're going to be sad in six months. Don, you, do you have any? None come to mind. None come to mind. So the, so the one that, that, that always comes to my mind, which is that, that uh, data, because we impanel data safety and monitoring boards, we, we tend to look at the data early. And, and, and I want to be very clear to the listener that we account for that statistically. So that's not a, you know, it's not a, it's not quote unquote cheating, although there can be controversial how we actually choose to do it. But um, but we tend but but the DSMB is then powered, as you said, to stop the study early if the effects are greater than uh, what we expected. But the thing that we know is that it un when we have large effects from underpowered studies, those effects tend to be overestimates. And this is stopping studies early tends to lead to overly optimistic views of particular drugs or interventions or, or devices because we stop them early. Now, you absolutely can make the argument that it's unethical to continue, that, that we have an ethical obligation then to offer this uh, intervention or drug or whatever it is to the, to the control arm. But it does mean that, that we don't get the right answer, it, it, right answer in quotes there, meaning the, the, the effect that we would have observed had we just run the study out until its completion. So there's a tension there between, between the ethics of protecting the patient and the ethics of getting the right answer so that we protect all patients and, or, or protect all patients, give patients the right answer about what it is the treatment benefit is going to be. And I just, you know, th th that's sort of the one thing that's always nagging in my mind when I think about the empowerment of DSMBs to shut things down early. Right. Yeah, but that's a pretty powerful argument on the other side. The, the protecting patients. The, the, ethical, the ethical argument. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you not see, though, that, that if we no, no, I do. give I do. people a rosy and overly optimistic you know, this we have some wonder drug, and actually, it's better than the the, the standard of care, but it's not you know it's not amazingly better than standard of care. Well, you know, that it, would be the precision of our unethical too. The, the precision of the effect size will be diminished because it, we're starting. It's not just the precision; it's and, the point and, estimate and the point estimate, right? The, the precision as well as where the point estimate actually is yep. will be will be more inaccurate if we're starting at stopping it early. I, I completely agree with that. But if the effect is so large that it it already seems to be um, showing a, 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 a 
easily beneficial effect, then I find it hard to not offer that mm. to the, yeah, to the control you. arm, to the no, arm that's you. not getting that. I, I, I hear you. Although, we, of course, we also know that even trials that are carried out to completion tend to overestimate effects mm-hmm. because of the populations that they enroll. They're designed mm-hmm. to show effects, and, and therefore when they go to general populations, often we don't see the benefit. So then you stop it early and you're putting that together. Anyway, it's that's, the, na- that's it's the all. nature of the work we do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, but but I do, you know, that is okay. Anyway, DSMBs. It's we thought it was worthwhile talking about them because uh, I think that the the general public might not be aware that there are these uh, systems and structures in place to actually protect patients and take care of the safety of both the the patients and the data. Okay, so let's move on to our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, where we want to highlight some of the things that make our jobs even better than they already are, the weird and wacky things that go on or the things that inspire us. And I'm going to go first because mine is just a headline and it relates to what it was we were talking about in the first segment, which was the organic food. So this is an old one, but this was from uh, a newspaper, let's call it, uh, called The Un-Australian. Do you know The Un-Australian? No. And the headline from the Un-Australian, I don't have the year on this. I don't know. I think this was probably in 2015. Is this a journal in New Zealand? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I would think not. But the, the, the oh, it was 2015, uh, October of 2015. The headline is World Health Organization warns that consumption of kale leads to arrogance. <laughs> I've seen that. that was, wasn't that from The Onion? No, <laughs> it's no, from like The it. Un-Australian. I think, I, I think that's good. Which is... But I think that they go. might be actually quoting from the Onion. I'm pretty sure that this showed I, up in one okay, of the. Okay, I'll look it up, but I don't think so. But I like, but I I like will, it. I will. I will go back and look at my uh, sources. So, Chris, yeah, what do you got for us? Sure, I'm. I'm going to loop back to um, a theme I brought up a couple, a couple of weeks ago, which is my uh, dog Pepper. <laughs> Uh, who is Pepper, Pepper, who is less and less uh, with Pepper because she's an old dog and she's grizzled and limpy and gimpy and she's got terrible joint disease. So far, this is kind of a downer, Chris. Yeah, poor Pepper. Um, She used to be great at catching Frisbees, but now her Frisbee catching days are over and she sits on the carpet most of the time and kind of moans. So poor dog. And we we took her to the vet and the vet said, you should give this this poor dog some glucosamine. And I got very annoyed because I like I was aware of the big New England Journal of Medicine study from 2006 that said glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate you know, supplements alone or in combination really don't seem to do in anything people. in terms in humans. And yep. so why would it work in dogs? Because like, dogs are different than humans. We dogs always say are humans, than humans are different than dogs. So And so I had that kind of like, you know, irritated, you know, bee in my bonnet. Oh, oh there we go. You it in there. Got there. <laughs> <laughs> so it come, it comes back. <laughs> you cannot go without talking about bees. All right. Um, I, I found this study in um, Science Translational Medicine, and it totally hit the sweet spot for me. Okay. The title of the study is called Radiocarbon Dating Reveals Minimal Collagen Turnover in Both Healthy and Osteoarthritic Human Cartilage. So this is Human Translational Medicine 2018, uh, 2016, and the lead author is Katja Heinemeyer. Now, what they did, which is so cool, was basically to do carbon dating of cartilage. Like, you know how we do carbon dating of trees to see how old they are? They did the same thing, leveraging a natural experiment, which was the nuclear test ban in 1964. And before that, we were were firing off nuclear bombs constantly. And the the radioactive carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere went up, 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 up at a sharp and scary level. Okay. But then it went down, 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 down after they instituted the international test ban. So the the effect is that, you know, you know that carbon is incorporated into almost every bodily tissue in uh, it, that we have, including collagen. And so while you are, like supposing you were born in 1930 and there were no nuclear bombs yet, and you were a growing young lad who went from zero to 13 years, which is about the time that cartilage develops, and after mm-hmm. that it stops you would not expect to have much carbon-14 incorporated into the collagen matrix. Okay. Right? Sure. Um, because there I wasn't, wouldn't. Right? Unless, unless there, was, there was uptake of radioactive carbon C14 later on in life. So you can use the sort of age of the population to, and, and overlay that against the, the, the hmm. C14 levels in the atmosphere okay. as a way of figuring out, like, how much turnover is there in cartilage? What, what does this have to do with pepper? So <laughs> osteoarthritis... <laughs> 
is is defined by the degradation of our cartilage matrix. Okay. And cartilage is formed of collagen fibers, which are these long strandy fibers secreted by these cells called chondrocytes. And there is, then these cells also secrete an extracellular matrix called glycosaminoglycan. Okay. okay, which is kind of like a squishy, slimy substance that binds water and acts like a molecular sponge Gross. and has a con- okay. and has a has a sort of a cushioning effect when you take steps. And so they wanted to know like, you know, the, the, there's been this ongoing debate to what degree do does the cartilage repair itself over time? Mm-hmm. And it is clear that it does not repair itself very much because you know, we know that osteoarthritis tends to get worse and worse and worse and there's very little we can do about it. But the question is does it in fact turn over at all. Mm-hmm. And what they found through carbon dating is that there is apparently no turnover of the cartilage Ooh, whatsoever. That's bad. And that when you, when you look at the C14 deposition into cartilage, it is almost literally associated with the ambient level of CO2 at the time that they were developing. So that is very interesting. Oh. Um, and so you, 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 and you also have these sort of <laughs> You know, you might say, well, okay, that's the average of cartilage, but that's per- what I was going to per- say. Perhaps when you have osteoarthritis and the, the the cartilage is damaged, maybe the repair mechanisms ramp up, sure. and so you would see an increased corporation. I, I could believe of, that. You know, a, a, you know what, what you'd expect to see if that were true is that carbon dioxide, radioactive CO, uh, you know, carbon fourteen that had been laid into the cartilage matrix in 1963 would go down if there was repair because after 1964, mm-hmm. the, the radioactive CO2 levels in the atmosphere are going down. Yep. And so if there was repair going on, you would see that post-64, the, the, um, in those individuals, there would be a loss of of this um, mm-hmm. of, of radio, a radioactive uptake. And, and you, you basically, you don't see any evidence that hmm. the, the C14 that has been incorporated into the cartilage matrix changes once it has been laid down wow. at all. Huh. And it in fact acts like sort of like a dead tree ring where what you see at that point in time remains there inevitably, you know, uh, hmm. permanently. Okay. Um, they also found some things which were really interesting, which is that the, the cartilage growth appears to be centripetal, meaning that when like if you're looking rings. at like the knee, if you're looking at the knee, the center of the cartilage um, o- across the knee joint develops first, and then it grows radially out from there. And so you can also use that as an internal control to see like, like tree rings. Like rings. Does the, if you look at the center versus the periphery of the cartilage, there should be different levels of radioactive carbon in there because they were d- laid down, you know, possibly a decade apart from each other. And so you can use that also to index against the ambient CO, the radioactive CO2 levels to see if there's a change. And there is a change. And that change is, is exactly as you would huh. expect, that there's a differential depending on whether you're pre-1964, meaning that CO2 is going up. And so the peripheral part of the cartilage should have more radioactive carbon in it than less. Ah. And that is true pre-1964. Or after 1964, that the relationship goes down wow. because there is less uh, in in the later years oh, of life. That's cool. It was, I thought this was a really clever way of addressing this yeah. this question. Very interesting. Cool. Okay. Based poor, on that, I think my, car, my cartilage probably glows in the dark. Because <laughs> I was eleven in nineteen sixty four. Yeah, you should you should look at this this figure, Don. I mean, it's, it's I kind was, of. I'm, I'm wondering why my knees are glowing when I turn out the lights. Yeah, nineteen sixty four. I wasn't born for another fifty years. Yeah. See that, Matt? Wow, beautiful. Chris is showing me a figure. C14 levels go up and right. they go down. Very so, cool. So I ha- I'm reaching back also. Uh-huh. Um, so I've, I've, I've pulled a paper that was published in um, Studies in Conservation. There we go. So it was published in Studies in Conservation 1990 by um, Paula Romayo, Al- uh, Adila Alcaro, and Cesar Viana. And they noted the fact that apparently... There is an adage that the best way to clean um, your gold leaf or the best way to clean um, fragile painted layers on low-fired ceramics like clay objects and painted cork is using human saliva. This is an adage? People say this? Apparently those in the conservation um, uh, industry where they have old artifacts made of gold leaf and of pottery say that the best way to clean these objects is 
I honestly he's thought you were gonna using human saliva. I honestly so thought you were gonna say there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. You were gonna tell us that was wrong. <laughs> there no. are several ways. There's not. There's only one way. So the title of this paper is "Human Saliva as a Cleaning Agent for Dirty Surfaces." So okay. they wanted Does. to explore whether, in fact, this is true. So compared to what else? Compared to using your sister's hold on, toothbrush. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold <laughs> on. Two methyl heptane, xylene, or white spirits. Okay. So they're, okay, they're yeah, comparing that's what I it to, uh, to other other cleaning agents. Methyl heptane is what I go for. And what they what they did was that they did um, side by side comparisons with all of those various um, objects or mm-hmm. all, various cleaning solvents and um, looked at the ability of saliva in comparison to all of those to be able to clean oil paintings or gold leaf or um, pottery. And they found that saliva was far superior really? to any of those other substances. And then what they did was they, 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 they um, ran it through various procedures to try to isolate from human saliva what is the fraction that's actually most active in terms of the the cleansing effect. And it turns out that alpha amylase Mm. is an enzyme which is found in high concentration in human saliva, which is particularly beneficial in terms of um, cleaning these various substances. Uh, And they say that one of the reasons for saliva having good cleaning power on dirty surfaces, one class of enzymes, lipases, catalyzes degradation of fatty substances and other classes, hydrolases catalyzes degradation of hydrolytic substances. However, one of the hydrolases, alpha amylase, seems to be principally responsible for the excellent cleaning power of saliva. Wow. So we so should... this is the, really the basis of spit shine. Okay, oh, so I got a question. Wow. I got a question. Did, did they look at all at how effective it is when you're when you're a little kid and your mother licks her finger and then rubs it on your face to try and get the ice cream off? No, that was a, that's that's, that's a, a follow-up follow on? study. Yeah. That's going to be a follow-up. All right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So were, were they were they licking the objects? <laughs> Or do they extract the saliva? They have a bucket of saliva? No, oh, no. no they, had a, they had a little pipette. And they stuck it in your mouth and they and sucked s- out the saliva. Uh, and they sucked out some saliva? Yeah. Wow. Like a saliva you know, trap. We are, we are curiously um, uh, germaphobic about so many things, so many inanimate objects. Like you would think that like licking your chandeliers would be a terribly dangerous <laughs> thing to do and you would not do that. But like there's so much romanticism about kissing people, which is like a, a if you think about it empirically, a very unwise thing to do. <laughs> that is a direct inoculation. Yet, it's very popular. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I've heard. Okay, so. So don't lick your chandeliers, but do kiss your wife. <laughs> That is the end of our program. I'm, I'm glad we come up with some sort of moral, moral lesson or that comes husband. out of this. If you have any, <laughs> husband, if you have, fables. If you have any feedback on this or any other episode, we or, don't want to hear it. Or apparently licking chandeliers, and you want to suggest a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at @pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at, at @prophmattfox, or Chris at, at id.gill or Don at, at @dthea1. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us, and make sure to download our next episode.